right, good morning everyone. It is September 24th, 2021. It is currently 10.27 a.m. Eastern Time. We are on the bus on the way to Greensboro, North Carolina. We're going to go to the Civil Rights Museum down here, and we're learning about the sit-ins that happened at Greensboro. Um, it's a really nice sunny day. We're in the back of the bus cruising along. Hopefully you're able to hear us clearly enough, but I'm sitting here today with Ron, one of the Virginia trip travel participants. Ron, would you like to introduce, you, introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Ron Antonoja, and uh, I've been uh, listening to um, uh, David Domke's, uh lectures for a year or so now, and I've been thinking uh, more and more about ways that I can help um, and contribute to the uh, attempts to um, defend uh, voters' rights. And so when he brought up this in, this uh, idea of going on this learning tour, I knew it was an opportunity to be with others who are also interested in uh, preserving our democracy. And so I decided that I wanted to go and learn as much as I could about the, the background of of this whole process of um, trying to defend from people who want to take away the uh, voting rights of some people in our in our society. So here I am um, now, and I'm I'm trying to uh, um, help with the process of um, working with the people in Virginia, also uh, in the uh, field work that we're going to do after this uh, learning tour. Right, so after this learning tour, we're going to be doing field work for one week, um, knocking on the doors of Virginia voters and asking them to get out and vote for the upcoming Virginia elections. Ron will be staying on after the learning tour for that as well. I will as well, so we are looking forward to that a lot. So, Ron, tell me, with this being the first trip since COVID began in 2020, roughly, um, what was it like making that decision to go on this trip, and what ultimately did, made you made you decide to come on this trip? Uh, it was a very difficult decision to to come here despite COVID. I have a nephew who's a physician, and he um, has been very hard on me about uh, being careful during uh, the whole COVID period, and so he he gives me restrictions in what I can do if I want to come and visit with his two infant children afterwards. So I've been working very hard to uh, follow his instructions. And when I told him about this trip, he recommended that I don't go. And so um, I had to work my way through that. And I, I asked a lot of questions about what was going to be our protocols. And the more I heard about what Common Power wanted to do, and the more I thought about what would happen during the trip, I realized that Common Power is taking uh, great precautions to protect us all uh, from any possible COVID infections. And they gave me complete options for uh, not going into a restaurant if I didn't feel comfortable. And um, options of wearing a mask all the time, and they gave me a, um, a little air filter to help me uh, in, 
increase the chances that I uh, that, that none of the viruses are going to get through to me. So I finally came to the decision that I was going to go because I knew that I had control and I could um, uh, make sure on my own that I I could take the responsibility for it and and so far I'm feeling pretty good about it. Um, uh, I'm feeling like we're all being careful and that everything is safe here. That's really great, Ron. I'm glad to hear that you're feeling safe on this trip. Um, so my next question is, you know, despite the difficult decision of deciding to come on this trip, what what was really motivating you to go on this trip? What was so important about this trip that, you know, despite the scariness of COVID-19, um, your nephew's recommendations ultimately made you decide that this trip was important to you? Well, I, you know, I think that I want to be part of the solution and, and not part of the problem. And um, this was an opportunity for me to find out what was happening in the southern part of the United States as opposed to uh, the Pacific Northwest or California, other places where I've where I've done some door knocking before, um, and so so I wanted to come and do that, but I also wanted to be on this learning tour with uh, Professor Domkey and A.J. Musewe and and Bob Zellner and and Julia and and the rest of the the volunteers here, and uh, I wanted to. You know, I wanted to find out from them what, why they're here, and and I wanted to learn from them about what they know. And so, um, yesterday we had an amazing uh, experience with Dr. Uh, Scott, uh, who was our guide while we were in um, uh, Harper's Ferry, uh, because she really knows what was going on at that time. That's what she studies, and her presentation of. Uh, of her view of it was so good that I was really, really happy to to be here for that. Yeah, absolutely. So what what struck you the most about Dr. Scott's presentation yesterday? Um, and, and for background information, yesterday we went to Harper's Ferry and Dr. Scott showed us around. She taught us a little bit about John Brown and um, the history around that. So what, what, stuck, what struck you about what Dr. Scott said? or taught yesterday? I think it was the, the context of how Harper's Ferry fit into um, the, the beginning of the Civil War and and how it's now being preserved there in, in such, a, such a nice way. Um, and to actually be there with her and have her explain um, what, 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 is it, what happened in, in Harper's Ferry and how important um, John Brown's contribution was to um, the, uh, the the removal of um, uh, enslavement from uh, the United States. So I, I just to hear it from someone who has been spending so much time studying it uh, made it really authentic and quite valuable to me. Yeah, and just for some background information, for those who don't know who don't know about John Brown, John Brown was a white abolitionist who, um, in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, attempted to steal weapons from the federal government in order to free free slaves um, in a violent manner. 
And unfortunately, um, his uprising was, um, it got quelled, but his actions really were an igniting point for the civil war and questions over, well, what people, over states' rights to slavery. So very, very important individual. Harper's Ferry is an extremely important location. And for you, Ron, what do you think is the significance of what John Brown did that makes him so important to the story of civil rights here in America? Well, John Brown showed that what that that a, that a, a white person, first of all, um, could be a important um, trigger for um, changing the situation back in the uh, mid 1800s. So he he took it upon himself to to put himself in a dangerous situation, and he even gave up his life um, uh, for it. He uh, probably could have found a way um, out of the situation he was in if he was willing to admit um, that he had done wrong and, and but he wouldn't he he stuck to his principles and um, and made a commitment that has made a difference in everyone's life here so I'm very inspired by John Brown right John Brown is really amazing you know he really used um, his white privilege to champion for what he believed in. He stuck to it like crazy, even giving up his life. Um, he was later tried and executed by the U.S. government. Um, he was hung in the gallows for treason, um, for an act of terrorism against the U.S. government. But he really stood up for what he believed in, which I was, I personally was also really moved by that too, Ron. Um, and then tell us a little bit about what we did after Harper's Ferry. After Harper's Ferry, we we um, all went out to uh, th this farm where John Brown and the team of people that he put together for his raid on Harper's Ferry uh, prepared. They it's where they brought all their weapons and and where they trained and 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 stayed there right up until the moment that they left to go into Harper's Ferry and. Um, that was, uh, I was looking forward to seeing that after reading about it in John Brown's biography. But then we also got to learn about something that was not uh, reported or was not known to me before this, which is that the Black Elks uh, later in the 1950s bought that property and they, they built a, uh, uh, what is kind of like a, uh, Yeah, like a dance hall for um, for the uh, um, black community, and they somehow got the services of a uh, uh, a promoter, and he brought in all of the different um, uh, rhythm and blues um, performers that were important during the 50s and the 60s, and there were several um, people that had uh, been to those dances. That was also invited there, and uh, an author who wrote the book uh, wrote a book about it all was there, and so we got to hear about um, from their perspective of what it was like in the, in that time period, and it, it, the, the facility held about um, uh, 
couple, two or three hundred people, I think, at a time to come in there. And they had these um, live performances by many of the big names in music in the in the black community at that time. So there was um, uh, James Brown and um, Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin and um, and the list went on and on. Uh, performers that performed there at one time or another, and and we got to listen to the people who actually come there for those dances um, and tell the tell us all about how exciting it was and what an important um, uh, the importance of that property. Now, when you add the John Brown and to James Brown and all of the experiences that they had. Uh, back in the uh, late 50s and early 60s. Yeah, absolutely. So we had two individuals who had actually been at those dances um, come come and speak with us at the time about their experience. And they told us about how the dances would, dances would start at 11 p.m. and they would dance into the night for four hours straight. Um, they said there wasn't much drinking or many drugs, just the black community coming together, dancing, having a really good time, mingling, having fun and just celebrating. Um, it was really amazing. We got to go inside of this dance hall and the same disco ball from 50 or 60 years ago was still hanging there. Of course, it had a huge hole and it was rotting, but you know, you could just see the shine of the disco ball. You could imagine like the rhythm and the energy of the space. It was really amazing. Um, and they talked about how James, one of the women who came and spoke with us, they talked about how James Brown used to throw out his cufflinks to the ladies and they would crawl on the floor, like bowing to him, screaming his name. Like he was, um, apparently he was very charismatic and all the women loved him. So yeah, it was really great being on that site and just imagining the music and the rhythm and just like maybe 20, 30 feet away. Um, is the John Brown's headquarters where he had planned that raid. Uh, as Ron mentioned earlier, the Elks had brought this, bought this whole property. Um, so it was really amazing seeing kind of this almost contrast, but not really a contrast between this really historic civil rights site of planning a raid on Harper's Ferry to free the slaves. And only 30 feet away is this beautiful dance hall, maybe 50 or 60 years later where the young black teenagers are coming together to dance and listen to their music and celebrate themselves. So yeah, it was, it was a really great experience, Ron. Um, anything else you want to add about our day yesterday before we sign off? Because we're about to arrive in Greensboro. It was long and I, I wore my, I wore my mask for something approaching 12 hours, uh, yesterday and I don't, I wish I didn't have to do that. I know, I, I feel the same way. It was a very long day to wear our masks. My, my face was sweating. I had a little imprint on my face getting back to the hotel. <laughs> but still fun regardless. So thank you so much for coming with us on this trip, Ron. It's been a pleasure having you, and uh, maybe we'll check in with you again. Okay, thank you, everybody. I uh, hope you all can repeat this and the next time they do it. <laughs>